simply tell you if the agenda is uh, climate, they tell you to go to climate. If the agenda is human rights, now the main agenda is LGBTQI. They tell you if you don't behave, we are going to cut aid. Well, that cannot dictate to us. This is our, our, our country, this is our society, this is our future. It is not anybody's future. And uh, uh, the outsiders will have to live with us, or if they don't want, they take their aid and we shall... Uganda is very rich, we don't need aid. In fact, aid is part of the problem. transmission of interference is an incompetent, corrupt, and ideologically unclear leadership. The second is a structure in the bureaucracy of government and administration that is beholden to the white gaze or to external gaze. Within the public administration, you harvest intelligence and you harvest division. The third is religion, as you rightly said. Religion, and it's not just Christianity, we've seen the competition for different sects of Islam in the Horn, in the Mediterranean, and it's not just religion, it's NGOs, international and national. Not just those, but churches as well. And I'm talking about these as institutions. But ultimately, Steve Bickert describes the vector of interference. He says the most potent weapon in the, in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. If you do not control what you educate, if you do not control what you communicate, if you do not control your narrative, you develop what we've seen, a disconnect between the leadership and the citizenry, a disconnect between the old and the young, a disconnect between the analog generation that has power and the virtual generation that is unemployed, a disconnect that is easy to employ. The future of this intervention chair, data, and the digital platforms will define the most potent weapon in interference. You do not need to do it physically, it will be done remotely. And lastly, Chair, I want to suggest to you, the most, second most potent is economic fragility. A people that cannot feed themselves, that depend on foreigners to feed them, will become slaves, either willingly or by force until this continent assures its stomach infrastructure by its ability to feed itself, until this continent assured, assures its mental infrastructure by the ability to think for itself and ideate, then this continent will be thought for by others, fed by others, 
There is no liberty without these liberated intellectual zones and the ability to feed yourself. So interference happens because of our own inferiority and because of the supremacist views of others. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Brian. The fence. So let me explain what this. A young Zimbabwean businessman called Usisa Moyo characterized the problem of Africa. He said, we are not broke, we are broken. Right, and there is a difference. It's a very wealthy continent in terms of its human resource. When, Afri when the United States decided to appoint a head for PEPFA, they took away from uh, my senior here, the chairperson of the African Union, his head of Africa CDC. They are African strategically, or black persons strategically, heading very strategic institutions in the global north. Why am I saying this? My elder Ashraf asked me about narrative. There are five modes of narrative. First mode is action. That's what I think the chairperson of the African Union is saying, that people will not believe what we say until they see us act according to our beliefs. Pan-Africanism is not a theory. It's the lived solidarity that made the Ethiopians give Nelson Mandela a passport, that made Senegalese civil servants contribute one dollar each every month for the liberation of South Africa, that made Zambia take care of us as Zimbabweans and South Africans as we fought for our liberation, that made Uganda take care of the comrades that now run this country. If Pan-Africanism has no active solidarity action, no active affirmative action, the words are meaningless because even the devil can quote scripture. The second is dialogic. We have for too long used authority to govern our people and not dialogue. And in this respect, I must commend my colleagues and comrades here in Rwanda because they are able to hold leadership meetings where citizens talk to leaders. I am hoping the African Union chairperson and um, the African Union Commission chairperson can actually convene with ECOSOC a conference each year of the citizens, not just NGO, a conference of the citizens drawn from the, the continent and talk, because often we only get to talk to our leaders in conferences in the United States and in Europe, and thought. There is no pan-Africanism without doing what Michel Mugo said, create liberated zones of pan-Africanist thought. When we think, it's our European theorists who are thinking. When we speak, it's our American teachers who are speaking. It is okay to have gone to America to learn. It is okay to have gone to Asia to learn. But what is the influence of African intellectuals and thoughts on what the African Union does, on what our governments do, on what our civil society does? Number three, we need to describe oppression. I, I, I'm sorry, uh, I hear this a lot when I come to Rwanda. Uh, you have to hear me, I'm Rwandi, so you cannot do anything about me. I have immunity here. <laughs> um, you people like to say, let's forget, let's not blame anyone. Uh, please, stop that nonsense. Uh, when the Holocaust happened against the Jews, it was 1940s, 45. Not a single African country other than Ethiopia, and those who had not been colonized, was free. The first African country got independent 1957. There is not a single Jewish person who will allow you to forget the Holocaust. And it's, in fact, there are crimes, not just in Israel, across the world against denial of the Holocaust. U.S. foreign policy, Israeli foreign policy, 
is very key. It's a central issue. Africans, for some reason, must forget something that happened 50 years ago, if you are Zimbabwe, 80 years ago. Listen, we must always remind our friends from Europe and elsewhere that slavery was a crime against humanity as is colonialism and neocolonialism. That killing Sankara in 1984 because you are opposed to communism and plunging his country into chaos that you are now trying to solve as a problem of poor governance is a shared responsibility. So, we will take responsibility for our nakedness. But for goodness sake, for goodness sake, a, a naked emperor cannot lecture us about how to be clothed. <laughs> and I'll tell you the contradictions. When Europeans first came here, if you come to the south of the continent, uh, ladies did not wear long skirts. And they did not cover their top. Then they said, no, 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 that's indecent. So we covered everything, including the head. <laughs> and then the Europeans have decided to go nude now. Now the dress code in Europe is pre-colonial Africa. <laughs> And then when our kids try and dress up that way, we say it's an African. We are confused around ownership. So lastly, Chairperson, uh, the taboos. You see, Chairperson, we need to talk about global anti-black racism, the treatment of African migrant labors in the Middle East, in the Arab world, and in the Asian world, and in Europe is a matter for the African Union to constantly pronounce itself on. And I'm glad Chairperson issued a statement on George Floyd, but I'm waiting for the African Union resolution from last January on reparations. There was a formal policy of the United States government in 2015 for reparations by companies behind the Holocaust. There needs to be the conversation on reparations is not to be settled by African political elites, right? Today, Zimbabwe is paying back white commercial farmers reparations. But when you talk about any reparations, it's like the black body is not worth repair. What we must do is endure, be resilient, go forward, don't look back, trudge on. But today, with the scramble of Africa that PLO was talking about, they will interfere here whether we put in place the right policies or we put in place the good governance. Why? They need the lithium. And if your right policy is not consistent with their green energy transition that they control, they will take you out and they will cause instability. We cannot do it as single countries. We are not uniting because it's the good thing to do. We are not uniting because it's the principal thing to do. If we don't unite, we will perish. If each one of our small countries, as economically unviable as we are, rush in order to prove distinctiveness, I'll tell you what will happen. We will be so fragmented intellectually, politically, our institutions will have no meaning. Let me end with uh, something more positive. I think Pan-Africanism flavor is alive today. You adults, you only listen when you have had a few glasses of wine to Afrobeat. And of course you don't like this thing, they are always singing about body parts and so on and so forth. I want to suggest to you, one of the most revolutionary things that uh, the African Union, under the leadership of the, the chairperson here, has done, is to talk about arts, culture and heritage, not as entertainment, not as add-on, but as part of imagining the future economy, is to talk about the digital not as part of little things you do, 
but as part of building the economy. All that's left now is how do we defend African art, culture, and heritage, not only in Africa, but globally. How do we make sure it is the mainstream of AFCFTA along with all the other big things we do? And how do we, in the digital economy, make sure we are not consumers of products that are produced elsewhere and not part of the production chain? If we do that, our Pan-Africanism is economic, our Pan-Africanism is cultural, our Pan-Africanism is intellectual, our Pan-Africanism is also spiritual. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Chair. Uh, thank you, uh, Excellencies. Um, Moala is grateful to come back home um, to Rwanda. Uh, we do not and we have not controlled our mining sector. We do not and we have not controlled our data and statistics. We do not and have not controlled our education. We do not and have not controlled our security, whether it's digital security or it's generic uh, continental security, whether the threats are exogenous or indigenous. We do not and have not controlled our communication channels. This is something that's been realized since the inception of the African Union. And if you think about this, as we talk about unconstitutional changes of governments and other things, there are several things that are important as we reflect on foreign interference. State and nation building, how we transition to independence, and the Cold War and how it played out, the use of uh, mercenaries, military coups, and capture and retention of power, and etc. In statistical terms, Chairperson, there were 200 coups in Africa between 1965 and 2012. In the 1960s, there was at least one coup every 60 days. In the 1970s, barely 18 years after Ghana's independence, at least 85% of African states had some coup experience or the other. And West Africa accounted for almost 44, 44% of those. Uh, I mean the coups between 1958 and 2008. There was a temporary reprieve in the period post-1990. Some academics have suggested this because Africa had become more democratic. I want to disabuse you of that notion because it's lazy intellectualism. What had changed was that Western interest in a unipolar world in changing regimes had dissipated. The West no longer needed to use force. There was no competitor, either ideological or otherwise. What had essentially happened, there was dominance of one set of interests. So as we reflect on unconstitutional change of government, it's not just mere tinkering at the local level, but it's also what explains the ouster of Nkrumah, the assassination of Lumumba, the assassination of Sankara, the assassination of Amilka Cabral, the assassination of Samora Machel, the ouster of Sekuture. What is the fact? That in a unipolar world, the appetite to change had dissipated. As we see greater polarization between the West, the East, and the Middle, we're going to see once again an intensification of interference. Less than 15% of that interference, Chair, will be justified as follows. Protecting and pro promoting human rights or preventing genocide. Protecting lives and property of citizens. 
fighting terrorism, violent extremism, or stopping some form of unproductive ideology. However, what we know, no intervention happens except it is in the interest and the propagation of the political, economic, social, cultural, racial, and other strategic interests of those who have power. But there are direct consequences, and have been for Africa, which are chaos and instability, uh, retarded development, international uh, internationalization of conflicts, regional instability, destruction of cultural and other heritage, as we saw in Timbuktu, destruction of state institutions and public services, warlordism and violent extremism, as we've seen in the Horn and in the Sahel, collapse of the formal economy, and debt, poverty, and inequality, sexual and gender-based violence, and the pillage of our economies. Now, if we imagine in this framing that these are what we are dealing with, what are those channels of transmission?